Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, a forum for integrating the life sciences, where we discuss the latest bioscience publications. As a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to bioscience.oxfordjournals.org. And in our second episode, I'm joined by Dr. Robert Devlin, who's with Fisheries and Oceans Canada. His work here is focused on the environmental threats that could be posed by growth hormone transgenic fish. In particular, his goal is to try to figure out what might happen if these fish were accidentally released into the natural world. And before we get into the interview, it's worth noting that the strains he works with are similar to those developed and patented by Aquabounty Technologies, a company that's currently seeking approval to commercialize its operations and produce aquaculture salmon for human consumption. Uh, so without further ado, here's Dr. Devlin. All right, so I'm joined now by Dr. Devlin. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. So just to get us started, I was hoping you could give us a little bit of history or background about these growth-enhanced fish. Uh, when were they first invented, as it were? Uh, certainly. Uh, Growth-enhanced transgenic fish actually uh, were first developed in China and in the United Kingdom in the mid-1980s. So it's really been more than 30 years now uh, since uh, transgenic fish or genetically engineered fish have been um, in research environments. Uh, after uh, several years in the late 1980s, genetically engineered salmon started to be produced. Uh, and these are the ones that are uh, primarily uh, being focused on for production situations now and uh, the main topic of our, our risk assessment research as well. And are these fish currently in evaluation for, for human consumption? Yeah, so our fish are, are not at all for commercial purposes. Uh, we've developed our growth-enhanced transgenic salmon for research purposes only, for risk assessment analysis and to understand the data requirements that are needed for a robust uh, risk assessment. Uh, but there are other groups uh, globally that are producing uh, genetically engineered fish, primarily growth-enhanced ones, uh, for commercial purposes for use in an aquaculture environment. Okay, and so the fish that you're mainly looking at, those are similar to the ones that we'll eventually see in wider commercial production, at least prospectively. The the the, uh, the fish that we're uh, working with primarily are coho salmon, which is a Pacific salmon, and uh, also rainbow trout, which is in the same uh, genus as, as the uh, coho salmon. Uh, both of those are what you'd say from... Uh, from a distant view, they're very similar uh, to the Atlantic salmon that are being produced uh, uh, for potential commercial use. So what is it that makes the transgenic fish, both those that you've worked with and those that are being developed for potential commercial use, uh, different from the wild type fish? So the, the main uh, approach that's been taken to modify uh, fish transgenesis for aquaculture purposes has been the insertion of uh, modified growth hormone genes. So growth hormone is a very high level regulating hormone that uh, modifies the metabolism and behavior of the animal in very profound ways. And it's a very highly regulated in, in wild type fish. It's only produced in the pituitary gland uh, and, and it's expressed um, in controlled ways in response to environmental conditions, uh, developmental profiles, and so on. And what has been done through the genetic engineering process is to take the gene for growth hormone and remove the regulatory portions of the gene that allow it to be regulated in a precise way and to allow the gene, uh, the, the modified gene, to be expressed in what you know, one can almost call a dumb way and that it just is, expresses growth hormone at all times and in many tissues in an unregulated way. This results in high levels of 
fish growth hormone in the in the animal and results in rapid growth. It's important to note that uh, all the transgenic fish that are being produced for commercial purposes are only using uh, fish growth hormone genes and that particular hormone from fish uh, is not active in uh, higher vertebrates such as humans or, or other mammals. So if I'm understanding that correctly, just taking an initial view, we wouldn't expect the enhanced growth hormone to have any effect in animals that might wind up eating the fish, including humans. Potentially other fish might have uh, some effects, but um, but mammals and, and many other vertebrates, uh, probably not. Um, there are secondary influences of the growth hormone on compounds in the animal, um, other hormones like insulin-like growth factor one, and other, other uh, chemicals that may have some effects. But our primary research has not been in the area of food safety issues. It's been focused on environmental uh, risk assessment and what the potential effects of these animals might be if they were ever to enter the natural environment. Okay, and uh, what other differences do we see with the growth hormone fish compared with the wild type fish? You know, obviously they grow faster, uh, but do they wind up larger and are there any major behavioral differences? Indeed, there really are. I mean, one thing we need to make clear is is that the process, uh, at least for salmonids, um, in general is not making very large fish. It's making fast-growing fish that reach particular developmental stages in a shorter period of time. Um, we do see some environmental conditions in the lab where the fish will actually get larger than a normal uh, adult salmon, but in general, it's a, a growth rate enhancement rather than a body size overall body size enhancement. But indeed, many other characteristics have been uh, affected. As I mentioned, growth hormone is very high level. It affects metabolism, which um, influences the, uh, the division of cells and the requirement for energy. This in turn feeds uh, forward to the brain to modify feeding behavior. Um, the animals have um, what I would call a very voracious uh, feeding behavior compared to wild type. Uh, wild type fish are always balancing off the trade-off between the need to acquire food resources and to, um, to balance the risk when they do that of becoming food themselves. So compared with the wild type, these are just very hungry fish. They're, they're certainly al almost always hungry and um, they, they will eat um, voraciously. And because of that, um, they really uh, can have a very strong competitive uh, advantage in environments where you uh, produce or grow uh, transgenic and non-transgenic fish together. The transgenics will easily outcompete the wild type fish. Um, so that, that's one of the main concerns that people have had is if these animals were to escape into nature, uh, would they, you know, um, their appetites uh, be such that they would cause ecological effects through competition. But things are, are really not that simple for a risk assessment because uh, concomitant with the uh, feeding behavior causing a competitive advantage, um, this feeding behavior also drives the fish to um, expose itself to predation risk to a greater extent. They're out foraging more. Uh, they don't hold together in a schooling or shoaling fashion, clustered together to minimize their individual predation risk. They're out and, and dispersed. And this leads to them having a, a higher level of predation uh, susceptibility. So, you know, if, if they were to be released into a low predator environment, you, you might expect them to outcompete 
the native fish. Indeed, if there was sufficient food, they, they certainly could have that potential, whereas in a high predation uh, situation, um, they, they likely would uh, not survive. We've actually done experiments um, uh, like that in, in naturalized stream environments where um, the transgenic fish are found to hatch out of the gravel and emerge into the freshwater stream uh, sooner than, our, uh, than will their siblings that are non-transgenic. Um, and when, when that happens, the transgenic fish, in the absence of predators, have a, a distinct advantage. And that would seem to be one of the, one of the difficulties with the, you know, with the accidental release of fish like this, is that it, it's, it's probably, I'm assuming, very difficult to model all of the potential environmental circumstances that they might encounter. Uh, that's very true. Um, we we have done some modeling. There's some been some uh, really excellent modeling over the decades by other groups that um, have uh, focused on fitness-based uh, influences, and and these are primarily looking at uh, the survival potential through different developmental stages and the reproductive potential, the two main components of fitness. And um, one can do some reasonable modeling in that respect, um, uh, but the 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 genotype by environment interactions, the plasticity of the animal and how it how it may change across environments has not been incorporated into those models uh, as yet. Uh, but that, that's a, an objective for the future. So essentially, even if you do have a reasonably good model, uh, it's still not suitable to put your utter faith in it. You can't completely trust the thing. I, I think that's the case uh, for our transgenic salmon. We have quite a lot of data, um, but we, we certainly find incongruities in, in the information that we generate from um, experiments that only differ slightly in the, uh, in the environmental conditions. And so trying to make generalizations from those at this point uh, is very difficult. Um, the, the main thing that we found is, is just that there's a great deal of uncertainty in trying to um, take laboratory data and um, develop it into a robust set of information that a, a regulator could um, could feel comfortable about making a, a, a firm and, and um, certain decision about the outcome. Um, so uh, I think uncertainty plays a role in all risk assessments and in, in this uh, in this case uh, unfortunately the data that we've generated um, is largely uh, variable and therefore provides uncertainty for, for anyone using that information. And um, that's perhaps the main conclusion of the findings is that um, we're not able to, to actually make a defined uh, prediction about what would happen if the fish entered nature. And, and one thing I, I wanted to jump back to something you'd said earlier, um, what's stopping us from doing, you know, sort of a really simple, you know, empirical test of an introduction? It, you know, what, what, what makes this different from, you know, some of the other genetically modified um, crop species that, you know, we already have corn, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. alfalfa, et cetera, where we've, we've tested those. We, we know their invasion potential. Why can't we do the same thing with fish? That's a very good question. Um, I think the main reason, uh, or there's twofold. One, one is the um, the difference in the strains uh, that are used as progenitors for transgenic fish are generally very wild type in nature. Transgenic fish made from those, if they escape into nature, would easily have the ability to breed and introduce the transgene into the environment. We, we've done those kinds of experiments in the lab where we set up natural uh, breeding environments and bring in fish from nature and transgenic fish from the lab, let them uh, sort out who will mate with who, and certainly the transgenic fish do mate with wild type fish and do transmit the genes on to the next generation. 
So um, because of that, the, the, because of the, the generally wild nature of the progenitor strains, that's a big difference from many of the genetically engineered crops um, and, and agricultural animals, for that matter, that have been highly domesticated for perhaps you know, many millennia. And, and we have a, a knowledge of what those uh, organisms would do if they escape. If transgenic pigs escape from the farm, we're likely to be able to find most of them and and uh, and um, and we also know what the history of those animals would be in terms of their uh, potential for survival in nature. And uh, that that brings us to the second point, which is that the the environments in which um, uh, plant and and agricultural animals are are being raised in uh, is very different from the aquatic environment. If transgenic or any any fish uh, escapes into aquatic environment, it's very very difficult to ever try and recover them, uh, certainly at at high levels. So once uh, a transgenic fish is out. Uh, there's very little you can do about it, and the the consequences of its entry will will ensue. So, what what kind of means are available to to protect against that sort of accidental introduction, or or having the fish flourish if it were to be, escape? Yes, that's uh, this has been well recognized for many decades now that um, these kinds of risks are, are are there. We now have lots of empirical data to show the uncertainty, and so there has been a focus um, for uh, at least fifteen years to develop two different approaches to trying to prevent this from happening. And the, the first, of course, is to develop um, high quality land based. Uh, but uh, physically contained facilities where you can raise these animals with minimal risk um, of entry uh, sh uh, into the natural environment. So make your rearing environments escape proof. One first wants to focus on the physical containment side of things to make sure that the fish stay on land. Um, but in, in the case that uh, you, you want to go further, there's been also a focus on developing biological control methods. And the main one that's been explored for transgenic fish is to induce a condition called triploidy, where the animals have three sets of chromosomes rather than two. And this results in the uh, the uh, a, a blockage of the development, proper development of the testes and ovary in these animals, rendering them functionally sterile. And uh, so that land-based uh, control plus sterility uh, seems like a, a very good way to go in terms of having a backup system. Of course, for any containment system, um, it's very critical to know the efficacy of that. And for triploidy, we find um, that um, typically more than 98% of the animals are sterilized, uh, often 99.8%. And that seems like a very uh, high level, and it certainly is for the potential escapes of fish from a, from a land-based facility. Uh, but if one considers the use of animals outside of those environments, for example, in net pens, uh, in typical aquaculture environments, even a failure rate of 0.2% uh, would still uh, potentially allow uh, quite a number of fertile transgenic animals to be released to nature. So we, we really need to improve the efficacy of containment methods if we want to, uh, want to consider growing these animals outside of contained land-based facilities. So it sounds like there is a good program for containment, but just thinking speculatively, um, what if that containment were to fail and you did wind up with you know, a, a fairly large number of, of transgenic fish that entered the aquatic environment? What, what sort of effects would we expect or, or do we just not know at this point? 
Well, that's, that's the key question. So the, the, the first question is whether they will survive in, in natural environments. And uh, all of the, the simulations that we've done, uh, I don't mean, I mean, um, actual experiments in naturalized environments indicates that the transgenic fish um, can survive in naturalized uh, conditions in ecosystems. Um, under different conditions, they may have enhanced survival or reduced survival, uh, but they, they will survive um, and they can um, survive to the extent where they'll, they'll grow up to adulthood and, and reproduce and produce transgenic progeny of their own, either by interbreeding with themselves or by breeding with uh, wild type individuals in the same environment. And, and so the, the key question though is what's the relative fitness of these animals compared to wild type? So if, if they have an, an enhanced ability to survive and an improved ability to breed um, relative to wild type, the transgene will persist in nature and, um, and, and, and not, be, um, not be purged from the system. Uh, whereas if the, there's a detriment caused by the, the transgene, of course, the, the transgene will be purged and the, the consequences to the ecosystem will only um, endure for the time that the, the, that uh, purging occurs uh, from the population. And that will, of course, depend on the fitness impairment that the animals are, are receiving. So it sounds like this puts regulators in kind of a tough spot because in a sense, they, they just don't have enough information to make a firm decision, do they? Well, they can make decisions, sure. um, but, but they, they are um, they're taking into account, at least in Canada, uh, the, uh, the uncertainty that's unfolded uh, from the empirical data that's been generated. And uh, I think for us to try and come up with certainty for some of the strains, it, it will be very difficult. You know, th there could be some transgenic strains that are very obviously impaired uh, in terms of their swimming ability or disease resistance uh, that they still might be suitable in sterile, land-based or other environments for aquaculture, but they the, the data will be so obvious that um, that they wouldn't make it in nature. That you know, reg firm regulatory decision could be made based on those. But the the fish that we have developed here are very close in their characteristics to wild types, except for um, these these changes in behavior and metabolism. So, um, uh, you know, to have a certain uh, prediction about what they would do in nature is is difficult at this point. And given that uncertainty, and I realize this question may be unfair, but I think it's one that our listeners will be interested in. Um, what's the worst case scenario? Are we looking at extirpation of the native species, or are we looking at massive interbreeding, a large-scale change in the aquatic environment, uh, or do we just not know? I think we don't know the answer, but I, I, I wouldn't anticipate extirpation of the species. One of the, the sets of data that we've generated is that uh, the, the transgenic strain is very likely to evolve uh, once it enters uh, a natural environment and, and experiences different genetic backgrounds. Um, as you as you know, wild populations contain variation, and they're they're constantly selecting uh, that variation in response to shifting environmental conditions to to. Pro to adapt to the to to those conditions, and transgenic fish will be no different, um, and they will um, try to improve their fitness um, by selecting um, variation, and and so I think you know it's unlikely that the the transgenic fisher would uh, would actually be able to. Uh, 
to uh, dominate and and uh, breed with um, wild fish to the point where we'd see no uh, non-transgenic fish. Um, I think the non-transgenic animals would would likely mount a counter response in terms of evolution. And uh, um, but uh, until we actually know uh, firmly what the fitness effects of the transgene are, uh, uh, unfortunately, it is uh, speculative at this time. And that leads me to my last question, which is, what's next for your research? Um, are you doing more ecological modeling and more threat modeling, or have you kind of moved on from that? Yes, I think um, there's there's a little bit more ecological work to do to to finish off the studies, some containment uh, research that uh, is underway. Um, but we've we've shifted uh, largely um, from pure transgenic research more to examining other types of genetically modified uh, organisms, for example, those that have been created by uh, selective breeding or domestication. Um, for, you know, it's interesting that uh, for transgenic fish, we actually know precisely uh, what the, uh, the transgene is that we've inserted into these animals, whereas domesticated uh, fish, um, which also can grow very fast, um, we don't really know the genetic basis of that, and we need to understand that to understand what their potential effects might be um, if these animals uh, escape and breed with wild fish. That sounds like a fascinating area of future research. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Devlin. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences. To read the article we talked about today, point your browser to bioscience.oxfordjournals.org. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next time.